in our last episode. On October 21st, 1927, a year after the murder of Ward Casey Jones, Burger Gangman Rado Milich mounted the gallows, read aloud his final words, and was hanged. Night of Another Sort Prohibition Days and Charlie Berger by Gary Deneal Chapter 30 Lucky Boys The trial of Harvey Dungey, Joe Boer, and Fred Thomason for the murder of Lyle Shag Warsham began in Marion on December 12, 1927. Representing Dungey was John Reed of Marion. Hal Gallimore of Carterville represented Boer. George Crichton of Heron represented Thomason. Both Gallimore and Crichton were court-appointed. As presented by the prosecution through its two eyewitnesses, Clarence Roan and Ural Gowan, the story of the Warsham murder had a quality of senselessness that had come to typify murders committed by the Burger Gang. It had all begun, they said, when Harvey Dungey began to suspect Lyle Shag Warsham of being too friendly with the Shelton Gang. Taken by Dungey and Thomason from a resort in Ziegler, Warsham was driven to Shady Rest, where he waited in Dungey's Hudson coach while the gangsters debated his fate. At first, Berger did not believe the allegations, but Dungey was insistent, saying, I'll show you whether he's guilty or not. He, Boer, and Thomason got into the Hudson. Berger, Ritter, Steve George, Ward Jones, and others got into a Lincoln. They followed Dungey's car to an isolated area about five miles south of Carterville. There, while the Lincoln's headlights glared fully upon him, Warsham was told how he would die. If, by some miracle, he were lucky enough to escape their gunfire and reach the top of a certain low hill, his life would be spared. Having no choice in the matter, the young man started to run, but was cut down by the machine guns of War Jones and Steve George. According to Roan, Jones then finished him with a 45 automatic. The cars were driven about a mile south. They turned around. Here, Berger said something to Dungey and his passengers. Back they drove to where the body lay. After it was placed in the Hudson, both cars were driven toward Marion. At the W.T. Watkins filling station at the outskirts of town, Berger bought a five-gallon can of gasoline. Again, the cars headed south this time to the pulleys mill area near the Johnson County line. Searching for a likely spot in which to deposit their victim, the gangsters found an abandoned farmhouse filled with broom corn. After Warsham's body was carried inside, Steve George poured gasoline on the premises, and when all were in the clear, Berger struck the match, then tossed it. Back they drove to Marion, their dark secret consumed by the roaring brightness. Such was the tale told by the two gangsters. Although Roan and Gowan gave basically the same account, they did not fully agree on the identity of the men who rode in the second car. According to Gowan, Berger was accompanied by Steve George, War Jones, Connie Ritter, Clarence Roan, Bert Owens, and himself. Roan, however, included the foregoing, with the exception of Bert Owens, but added to the list Paul Stanley, Jimmy McQuay, he probably meant high pockets, and Ted Nurek. The discrepancy in the two accounts was not lost upon the defendant's attorneys. 
All three defendants at the trial wore blue suits and had ready alibis. Boer, whose somewhat stockier build and pleasant countenance set him apart from his two co-defendants, claimed that from September 17th until October 1st, 1926, he was at his home in Indiana, visiting a sister who had been injured in an automobile accident. Later on the witness stand, several relatives would support Boer's alibi. Thin-faced Fred Thomason testified that at the time of the murder, he was in bed in his farm home in Franklin County, suffering from an attack of appendicitis. From Menard came his brother Harry to back him up. Short, dark-complexioned Harvey Dungy insisted he was hunting and working at his father-in-law's farm at the time Morsham was abducted and murdered. His mother-in-law testified that Harvey and her husband spent the day of September 17th cutting corn. As for witnesses Roan and Gowan, Dungy claimed they were waging a personal vendetta against him. Gowan was sore at him for not testifying at the Jones trial. Answering this charge, the prosecution later would show that Dungy did indeed testify for Gowan at the trial, and Clarence Roan had threatened him for revealing details of the Price murders. Dungy also suspected that the dynamiting of a building he had owned in West Frankfurt was Roan's doing. Dungy, who had made accusations against Boswell for some time, was hoping to be cross-examined by the state's attorney in order to get a few of his charges into the record. When Boswell chose to forgo the expected questioning, the defendant was heard to mutter, That's what I suspected. The jury saw the smile on the state's attorney's face. To counter Boer's claim that he was in Indiana during the time of the murder, the prosecution called a well-dressed young woman who operated the new Grand Hotel in West Frankfurt. She brought with her to the stand the Hotel Register, a formidable volume containing the useful information that Joe Boer was a registered guest at the hotel on September 15th, 18th, and 27th, 1926. That no such evidence existed as to the whereabouts of the two on September 17th did not deter Boswell's assistant, C. Ray Smith, from suggesting, in reply to Fred Thomason's protestation of illness, That's the first time I ever heard the operation of killing a man with a gun called appendicitis. As for Dungy's alleged two-day trip to Hamilton County, confirmed by his mother-in-law, Smith said that the woman had perjured herself to prevent further shame to her grandchildren. That relatives would lie to save the necks of their kinsmen was to be expected, threats of perjury aside. But during the five-day trial, there came testimony from Undertaker Bert Scobie, testimony that would have been unsettling to Boswell had it not seemed so absurd at the time. After examining the charred remains, Scobie said, he was convinced the body was that of a woman. The prosecution would brand that a ridiculous inference, but the damage was done. Seizing on the remark, defense attorneys hammered into the jury the fact that a leading undertaker of Marion had put his reputation on the line by testifying that Shag Warsham could not have been burned in the broom maker's barn. Hang them for this most diabolic murder in the history of Williamson County, or turn them loose, came Boswell's final argument. His less than lengthy summation was due to a head cold and sore throat. He continued, not that I want blood, but these defendants have by their acts placed the rope around their necks. I am not asking you to take the lives of three men. I am not asking you to kill them. I am willing to take my part in the responsibility. I am only asking you to stand with me and Oren Coleman. Three and a half hours later, the jury returned a verdict of not guilty. Entering the courtroom as Judge Hartwell announced the verdict, Boswell was more than stunned. I never fainted but once, and that was when that jury returned the verdict of not guilty. 
It seemed clear to him that Scobie's testimony had been the key factor in the jury's decision. In its editorial, The Verdict, the Marion Daily Republican stated that the decision had shocked the community more than anything that has happened in many months. Bitter that his efforts had come to naught, Sheriff Coleman refused comment, but his dour expression said it all. Boswell, who rarely refused comment on anything, said he no longer felt Williamson County was the place to try those accused of murdering the Prices, and that by default, the case should go to Washington County. Both counties had returned indictments. Word of the trio's acquittal brought a wistful comment from Berger. Lucky boys, he said, they sure got a break. When shown Attorney Reed's closing statements comparing him with Pontius Pilate, Berger could not keep from smiling. Chapter 31 It's a Beautiful World Clocks ticked and seasons turned, but for Charles Berger, the iron bars enclosed what future remained for him. Hope had all but vanished after the Illinois Supreme Court denied his appeal for a new trial on February 24th and set April 13th as the date for his hanging. Less than a month after this decision was announced, his attorneys, Charles Karch and Scariel Thompson, withdrew from the defense, leaving R.E. Smith as Berger's sole attorney. As spokesman for the two, Karch said their former client showed an unwillingness to cooperate with them in efforts to get his sentence reduced to life imprisonment. He was unclear as to what those efforts were. Following the Illinois Supreme Court's denial of yet another rehearing petition, Smith was successful in his request for an appearance before the Board of Pardons and Parole in Springfield, the day before the scheduled hanging. The morning of April 12th found Smith and Martin making their respective pleas before the board. Listening to each of them and following with his own appeal was Arlie O. Boswell, who had been driven to the hearing during the night by Berger's brother-in-law, Jake Shomsky. The state's attorney pleaded that the condemned man's life be extended so that he might gather from him additional information concerning the Price murders. Furious at this interference, Roy Martin charged, This is more a friendship matter than an official matter. Adding that his colleague to the south knew far too much already about the various crimes. At this point, the hearing very nearly turned into a fistfight. In a split decision, the board voted against the stay. Not yet defeated, Smith returned to Benton, arriving in time to file for a sanity hearing. Judge Miller granted his petition, much to the chagrin of Martin, who had himself hurried back to Franklin County to counter any last-ditch effort to prolong Berger's life. With April 16th now set as the date of the hearing, Berger saw his life extended by at least three days. It was a wearying business, this staying alive, and he was later to say the hearing was Smith's idea. If so, it was not one of his better ones. Rolling his eyes, swearing at hostile witnesses, tussling with Harry Weaver, one of Pritchard's deputies, Berger put on an embarrassing, unconvincing performance, one that added nothing to his legend. But in the midst of his disgrace came the testimony of another deputy, Charles Smith, a testimony that did touch up the legend a bit, and that indicated that the wit long familiar to querying newspapermen had not yet abandoned the gang leader. The witness said on one occasion that Berger had requested burial in a Roman Catholic cemetery, because that would be the last place the devil would think of looking for a Jew. Bob Smith wasn't laughing. He was not much more impressed by their only witness, a barbecue stand operator from DeCoin who had known Berger in Harrisburg, and who had visited him two months earlier in the jail. Yes, said Oris McGlasson. He believed his old friend was crazy, because Charlie reminded him of patients he had known while working at the Anna State Hospital. 
It took the jury only 12 minutes to find the defendant legally sane. Smith let it be known shortly thereafter that the long fight was over. This is the end of the road. That night, Berger ripped off a strip of his blanket, tied one end to one of the horizontal bars in the cell and the other end around his neck. When the guards found him, he was unconscious, but they quickly revived him. He requested that they keep the matter a secret. It was later revealed that two days earlier, he had taken arsenic. I swallowed enough to kill three men, but I guess I took too much, he told the guards. He could hear the hammering of the scaffold. From throughout the Midwest, newsmen arrived hoping to get an exclusive interview with Berger in the hours before the hanging. Sheriff Pritchard told them that his prisoner had become disgusted with being constantly misquoted and wanted them out of his sight. The sheriff added he intended to honor the man's wishes. From Epworth came Phil Hanna to test the trap and the rope, as he had done in his 60 previous hangings. While he worked, he could hear the prisoner raving, an unnerving experience for this gentle, middle-aged hangman. No doubt chagrined at being denied access to the condemned, Elva Jones of the Marion Evening Post at least hoped that Berger would reveal to someone his inside information about certain crimes, including the shootings at the Masonic Temple in 1926, where, according to Jones, Berger shot Harlan Ford from behind a car and where a wounded noble weaver begged for his life, even as an unnamed man stepped from the temple and shot him, and shot him, and shot him again. Despite his warning to newsmen, made through Pritchard, Berger consented to spend the night of April 18th, his last, with Roy Alexander of the St. Louis Post-Dispatch. The young reporter heard a litany of past mistakes, broken occasionally by an anecdote. In particular, Berger talked of his former wife Edna, who had traveled to Benton with her husband from their home in the Northwest. Oh, she was a good one, he said, and by far the best of his wives, certainly the only one who cared enough to return for the hanging. B he had not seen in years, and even Bernice, so conspicuous at his trial, even she was gone. She worked in a factory somewhere near Chicago. Chances are he did not touch upon the unexpected visit by Winnie Mofield, the mother of his oldest daughter, Minnie, weeks earlier, a visit that had degenerated into a scene and a tearful exit by Winnie. In the end, there was only Edna, the big blonde who had loved him when he was only a penny-ante bootlegger on his way up, the one he hadn't had sense enough to keep. He told of his being so caught up in a fervor on Armistice Day that he shot out the lights on the Harrisburg Town Square. One time, he even shot up some canned goods in a store he ran. As a gambler and bootlegger, he spent money as quickly as it came and had a grand time doing so, but he made enemies too. Four times a coroner's jury ruled in his favor. Then came a dovetailing of circumstances that resulted in a number of senseless killings, and one of them now brought him within the shadow of the gallows. He lamented the passing of his slain friend, Noble Weaver, former kingpin of Franklin County's underworld activities. All Weaver had to do was tell Joe and Gus Adams to do a thing and they'd do it, he said, the implication being that Weaver's death following the Masonic Temple shootout at Heron in 1926 had indirectly led to the murder of Joe Adams and thence to his own imminent demise. Just another day wasted away, droned from a phonograph in another cell, as on and on he rambled, touching here a wry anecdote, and there a very real truth. Once he had a friend who, while looking for a bargain in stale bread, had a tire worth $15 stolen from his car, the story of his life. 
On a darker note, he held the local officials partly responsible for the atmosphere of lawlessness that had plagued Southern Illinois and provided him with such opportunity, saying, I can see it now, that it all came about because there was no law. The gangsters ran the country down here, just like they have for years. Sometimes I think they ought to give the country back to the Indians. In the early hours of the morning, Bob Smith came for a last visit. For about half an hour, he listened as Berger talked. After their brief but poignant parting, the gangster confided that the sanity hearing had been Smith's idea, and that he was ready to die on the 13th. When asked about his suicide attempts, Berger said he had prayed to God to stop his heart, but he now conceded he would have to die in the manner prescribed by law. Throughout the night he seemed calm, although Alexander observed that in reminiscing, Berger's voice had a richer tone. Of his enemies, he spoke without vindictiveness, recalling them as though participants in a drama, where he played the starring role. Next time. I walked into where he was, and he had a bathrobe on and was walking up and down in his cell. I said, good morning, Charlie. How are you feeling? He stopped just like he had been hit. He said, How in the goddamn hell you think you'd be feeling if you knew you only had 30 more minutes to live? 